It's Thursday night. It's another edition of the podcast that you all love to tune into every Thursday night. With your host, Larry Luciato Crane. Everything I say on this podcast is strictly my own opinion, does not reflect the opinion or position of any other entity, any other person, anybody else. Nothing I say is legal advice. Nothing I say is in a professional capacity or official capacity. It's all just me as a private citizen speaking to you for purposes of entertainment. But you know I spread some knowledge on this podcast, and tonight I am not with you live, although it's at the same time... And it's where you've come to expect it. This is not a live podcast because, as we speak, I'm somewhere taking a little bit of time off. But the fact is that this week has had too much news. There was too much going on. Too many false narratives flying, and you know how that gets under my skin. Too much conversation. Too many newsworthy events for me not to get on the microphone and talk to you guys a little bit. So for those who don't listen live anyway, it's just another show. For those who normally listen live, maybe it's a little bit of a different feel. But I'll be back soon enough. I'm broadcasting to you now, despite what time and place it is. Even though it's Thursday for you or some other time, I'm glancing out at the beautiful New York and New Jersey skyline. I see a PATH train pulling in to Penn Station, Newark right now. The sun is setting over the area, and it's casting a light over the Pulaski Skyway and parts of Jersey City and downtown Manhattan, while Midtown, including Hudson Yards, the Empire State Building, is mired in shadows. The Golden Dome of Newark City Hall looks straight ahead at me, and I'm sitting here talking to you. We have the lovely sounds of John Coltrane in the background tonight, and this is just classics. I've played these over and over again on this podcast, and I intend to continue to do so. These are staples of the Coltrane catalog. Of course, this being a Love Supreme, and uh, you'll hear all their classics as the night continues. But back to what we're here to do, which is discuss what's going on in the world. The world is reopening, ladies and gentlemen. The world is reopening, and vaccinations are continuing to increase, although, as I've discussed, they are demand is trickling. Demand is not as high as it was. But nonetheless, we are vaccinated to certain amounts and certain numbers in certain areas where we're seeing COVID restrictions all over the country start to fall, which is great for the economy. And it's great for those of us who want to get out, enjoy some fresh air, enjoy friends and family, get back to a little bit of a semblance of normality. For those who own small businesses, those who are employed in certain industries, this is a new awakening of the country. And hopefully it's the parable to a new opening across the globe. And as we continue to increase our efforts in New Jersey, in Newark, and elsewhere to get people vaccinated. We continue to reopen and and to make progress, although sometimes it's slower and steadier than we'd like. But this week, as the world reopens, I've seen some narratives take hold, and I've seen narratives take hold as the result of news that's come out and The delusional nature of ideological politics and the delusional nature of group picking a team, picking a side thinking 
is as usual pervasive and as usual it's getting under my skin. So I've got to address it. This week in the news, one of the biggest mass hysterical things happening is this gas shortage, i.e. fuel, gas for vehicles. This gasoline shortage, this gasoline demand spike, this gasoline supply valley is all over the news, and, and we have different factions of different people. We got some people are just, you know, scrambling, panicking. Panicking to go get as much gasoline as they possibly can. Panicking to stock up. Panicking that they won't be able to find gas tomorrow. Panicking that there'll be a long line at the pump. Panicking that we're going to run out. Panicking that businesses are going to falter and trucks are going to stop mid-highway and everything's going to come to a screeching halt. When in reality, the Colonial Pipeline, which is a major, major, major artery for gasoline and fuel in this country, in the production of it anyway, was the victim of a ransomware attack. Interestingly, I recently uh, posted an article from The New Yorker, which was a, a lengthy and comprehensive article outlining how the city of, I mean, the country, the nation of North Korea, as a government actor, not even, you know, as a spin-off criminal entity or, you know, something on the black market, but the government itself is heavily, heavily, heavily involved and heavily invested in uh, cyber attacks and thievery, international uh, financial thievery, using and utilizing um, cyber attacks as a facilitator. And I just had gotten done reading that article, posting that article, and then you have this ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. And I was speaking to a listener, uh, Mark Manette, the other day, actually, after he got cut off two weeks ago on the show. We were talking about the vulnerability of this country and many of our infrastructure systems to cyber attacks. And people have been sounding the alarm for a very long time about our susceptibility to cyber attacks and the fact that we need to step up and ramp up our ability to deflect and defend against cyber attacks because our electric grid, our gasoline infrastructure, several other things are dependent on um, digital means, and they are quite vulnerable. And this is but a warning sign. Hopefully uh, those with the ability to do something take it seriously and start really getting innovative on how we can protect our infrastructure from these attacks. But nonetheless, Colonial Pipeline has been attacked. Now, the interesting thing is I'm, I'm seeing, you know, you have those people who are stockpiling and all that, like I just said. Then you have two other entities that I think are really uh, responsible for the mass hysteria that's currently going on. You have... To a lesser extent, and I'll get more to these people later, but to a lesser extent, you have the Trumpies, the Trump army that, you know, they, they just can't wait. They just can't wait to try to find something negative going on in the country because things are generally going better since the pandemic uh, is starting to recede. They're trying to find anything they can to say, oh, my God, oh, my God, the country's headed in the wrong direction. So they're they're seizing on this gas thing. Gas prices are high. Why do you think that is? You know, gas prices, they're up. It must be Biden, this, that, the other thing. We didn't have high gas prices. Whatever. That's a lesser extent of what's going on. 
more so you have the the usual culprit of you know the entity that's usually at the forefront of spinning narratives and working everybody into a frenzy for their own financial gain and that is the collective uh, entities we know as to the media and what we refer to as the media mass media every article you see is gas shortage ramps up people stockpile as gas shortage ramps up people wonder what's going on long lines at the pump as gas shortages spike expected gas shortages are short blah 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 anybody who actually does their research and reads a little bit and delves a little more into the articles and delves a little more into the substance of the articles instead of just relying on the headlines would realize that the colonial pipeline is expected to be back online by the weekend in fact while prices are of course going to go up a bit because of demand and because of obviously a temporary fuel shortage there's not this insane crisis where everybody needs to go stockpile gas and it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy the media as we always talk about the media trying to generate clicks and they generate clicks and we've talked about this by divisiveness by fear by mass hysteria by inciting panic and negative emotions in society and inciting negative emotions in people rather than appealing to to positive emotions in people we have the media going out to generate clicks to generate controversy to generate panic because it helps them in their bottom line in generating those things you know catering to this crisis angle about the gas shortage and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if demand spikes while supply is strained because of the pipeline then of course it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy not to get redundant where there is a shortage and a legitimate spike in prices and a legitimate strain on supply because people are stockpiling it while there's a strain. So it's creating a cycle, a vicious cycle in and of itself, and that's what we find ourselves in. But the truth is that while the colonial pipeline is a serious issue and that while public entities need to do a better job of securing our energy infrastructure, the fact is that gas prices, A, it's a temporary thing, and it's going to be okay, all right? So don't go out and start filling up your uh, excess gas cans for your generators just yet, folks, okay? It's not really necessary. Enjoy a cruise, go fill up your car like you normally would, and relax. We're going to get our supply, okay? But interestingly, this whole notion that, you know, the Colonial Pipeline is, is this huge, you know, existential issue other than the security threat long term. And more importantly, the insinuation that the insinuation that Joe Biden or somehow the new administration is responsible for rising gas prices and that it's some kind of new phenomenon. It's just not. It's just not, period. At the end of the day, there's a lot of other reasons, and this was interesting. I mean, in Forbes, in March, on March 25th, which is long before this colonial pipeline thing, long before this narrative that's sparked up this week, March 25th in Forbes magazine, March 25th, there was an article about why gas prices were rising. And gas prices are going to rise and continue to rise through the summer. 
And this article was from March 25th in Forbes, so it's already a thing that's going on. That's another phenomenon we're going to discuss tonight. People who don't seem to recognize a problem until it's right in their face and it's the thing to talk about. It's the narrative their society's currently riding the wave of, right? Until it's that narrative that's in everybody's news feed all day, and when I say news feed, I mean digital social media news feed. Until it's there, people don't know it exists, and then when it pops up on their news feed, they act as if it's a new thing. Like it literally just came into existence, when in reality, it's been going on for some time, and if you just use a little bit of time to search the internet, which is at your fingertips, you'd find that many of these issues are ongoing issues, and they're not newly sprung up issues just because you're just learning about them now. They're actually ongoing issues that simply gain notoriety in social media as of late. So be mindful of that. So gas prices have been rising, and it's been a question since at least March 25th, but before that, too. Forbes magazine on March 25th, 2021, published an article. Um... And before I even get to that, it should be noted that not only is there, again, as I said, a a supply shortage, but there's a 40% demand increase. That's just to put a number on what I said before. The increase in demand, 40% increase in demand coupled with a shortage is putting upward pressure on the price. That's basic economics 101. That's basic common sense, not 101. That's basic uh, money 101. But... Forbes' article essentially said there were a few factors in what was making gas prices go up. Now, the most prevalent of them all, and this is something that's going to be occurring uh, throughout society in the coming months, and people should get used to it. And I'm going to touch on some other things that have to do with the same situation uh, on the show tonight. But the main thing that's causing gas prices to go up is the emergence of the economy and society reemerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's common sense, too, right? We had seriously depressed demand for a lot of things, especially including fuel during the pandemic. Obviously, people weren't driving long distances to see family and friends. They weren't traveling as much at all uh, in any medium. They weren't traveling as much by car, by plane, any other way. Um, So fuel was at low demand, and therefore fuel production also slowed. And part of the reason fuel production slowed, too, was general economic shutdowns and COVID-19 restrictions, but also because there was a decreased demand. Um, Also, OPEC, as they normally do, they have some control over the market, and they've you know, stood together and been steadfast and keeping prices higher. And they've been together on this for a while. Now, the markets, this is another thing. This is where you could say that to some degree the administration has some ancillary impact on the price. Markets at this time, people who invest, speculators, are speculating that the Biden administration is going to constrict oil production coming from the United States, especially in the Arctic Refuge and other areas that they want to continue to restrict. The Biden administration is going to, by all uh, all indications, is going to incentivize um, alternative methods of energy, and they've been pretty vocal on that fact, and disincentivize fuel over a long period of time. That's to be expected. That's what happens when governments want to transition or you know incentivize and disincentivize things. Um, but that's not the administration actually raising the prices or even doing anything yet that would raise the prices. That's just market speculation, right? That's like any 
of us on Robinhood or any other trading apparatus that you utilize, just trading, and obviously larger companies to a much larger extent than we do, but trading in oil, right? And and simply speculating that the price that the supply is going to constrict, which means that each bit of it's going to be more valuable, and if they buy it now, then it will yield a return on investment later. And as we know from the stock market craziness that happened earlier in the year, the more people buy into something, the higher the price goes. So oil prices are going up due to market speculation. But primarily, more than anything else, it's the emergence of a burst of economic activity from the low levels of the pandemic. And we're not only seeing that in gasoline prices, okay? That this can this is evident throughout everything. And some people want to be quick to assign blame to the current administration because it might be political politically advantageous or perhaps it just suits them because they want to think a certain way and it comforts them in trying to comfort themselves that they're correct. But the fact of the matter is that materials across the economic spectrum are currently high in price. And there's a reason for that, okay? There's a reason for that. For instance, one prime example are building materials to build homes, specifically lumber. It's at an all-time high right now. I wouldn't say all-time because I don't know the historical record. But it's at, it's a very pricey. Those products are very pricey right now. And the reason is that... There are low interest rates right now, and they kept interest rates low so that the economy spurred, so that we didn't go into a deeper depression or recession following the pandemic. Interest rates are very low, and because interest rates are very low, most of you know, I would think, especially if you're in the market to buy a home or sell a home or you're just generally following the real estate market, you'll recognize that there's a housing boom right now in terms of it's a very seller-friendly market. People are buying houses at a, a very fast clip. Not only that, people are trying to move out of densely populated areas in some regards and move to bigger spaces because they're working from home, things like that. So there's a housing boom, and everybody knows that. But while we have a housing boom with very low interest rates... Again, because of the pandemic, there was a decrease at the initial onset of the pandemic because people were saving their money. They were afraid to invest in things. They're afraid to spend money. Builders and workers were unable to engage in their work because of pandemic restrictions. Economic activity was low in general. And now all of a sudden we have these low interest rates. So people are purchasing homes, building homes. And on top of that, we have an emergence from the pandemic with a steady boom of economic activity. So everybody who was putting off building or putting off buying a home is now this perfect storm where there's a high, high, high demand for homes and a high demand for lumber and other building materials. And those materials were not in demand for about a year. And now all of a sudden there's like a booming burst of demand for those materials and again basic supply and demand 101 if there's scarcity in the material but high demand for the material it results in a higher price so with gasoline with building materials with all of these things we are going to see price spikes in these goods 
we are going to see that in certain commodities, period. And so it's nothing to act as if, oh, my goodness, there must be some underlying policy. It must be the fault because of the administration change, yada, yada, yada. The fact is this is 101. This is common sense stuff. The hope is that we don't wind up in a situation where we have hyperinflation and the the cost of goods, but stagnation in wages. And I'll get more to a little bit of that soon. But, I mean, I'll get to it now. There's obviously also a a labor shortage in the country and a huge booming demand for people to go back to work. That's because, again, demand is spiking. So you need people to service the grocery stores, the restaurants, construction jobs, landscaping jobs, building jobs, service jobs, airline jobs, train jobs, hotel jobs, because the economic demand is spiking. And, And the issue with that, that's where... Everybody can get some blame if you want to call it blame. From the Trump administration to Republicans in Congress to the Biden administration to Democrats in Congress, everybody deserves some of the share of this because they all participated in massive stimulus packages, which we needed, which we're glad we have, which is the reason why demand is so high partially, okay? But in doing that, they also armed a lot of people with a lot of money, And buying power that increases demand while at the same time disincentivizing certain segments of the unemployed population from going back to work right away, right? They got a lot of money in their pocket. They have extended benefits. So they're demanding services, which increases the need for employers to hire people, yet they have the security and cushion And they have the luxury of waiting it out for a better position, so the job market is struggling in terms of attracting people to work for them. Again, the labor shortage isn't because Biden came and created a labor shortage. This is the confluence of events. And, you know, for the sake of consistency, if you are somebody who's a huge Trump fan or a right side of the center politically ideological person, I challenge you to stay consistent. When Trump became president, the economy continued to get better and better and better and better until he severely mishandled the COVID-19 pandemic, which is what got us into the valley, and now we're back in a peak. And I, for sake of consistency, said at that time that he was riding the wave of the Obama economy. That's true. He didn't crash the wave until he mishandled the pandemic. So he he only built upon the wave. He did a good job of building upon it. But I've always said that there was remnants from the previous administration that caused it. These things are huge things. The American economy, for instance, is a huge thing. It's not just going to change overnight, snap of a finger. It takes months, years to take shape, for policies to take shape. So I've always acknowledged that a lot of the good economy was was coming from certain Obama-era policies. Some of the bad economy at the beginning of Obama's first four years was from the decline at the end of the Bush years, which we saw when Bush was still in office. And now some of these higher gas prices, higher costs of materials, labor shortages, they're still the remnants of the previous administration. But guess what? You don't have to say that and say to, to be derogatory on your position. This economic boom, the success of the vaccinations... 
the success of the vaccine distribution, the success of a booming economy, the success of businesses emerging from the pandemic so quickly, the success of people having money in their pockets and demand being high and the economy poised to do so well. Those successes are also partially attributable to the previous administration. Those successes are attributable along with the downfalls. But you can't just sit here and say, oh, this and this and this is happening economically and all the bad stuff's the fault of Biden, all the good stuff's the fault of Trump, or all the good stuff's the fault of Biden, all the bad stuff's the fault of Trump. This is a confluence of issues that are really just naturally and in a complex way occurring in confluence with each other as we emerge from a pandemic. That's all it is, all right? It's an economic phenomenon. So this continued insinuation that there's some kind of, you know, hard and fast binary political answer to what's happening, good and bad, is just a misnomer. It's a misnomer. And these are complex issues that we need to understand. Now, I've caught some flack because I said people should go look into these jobs and get started somewhere. Some people say, well, these jobs pay too low, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Look, these... I read an article a while ago about hotel workers that had been laid off in New York City. Now, this was a higher-end hotel. I understand that, okay? But some of these people's wages were well into the six-figure range, $100,000, $200,000 range for being servers at banquets, you know, weddings, uh, bar mitzvahs, things of that nature. At the end of the day, I know not every hotel is paying employees that much because they're not all huge, you know, high-end Manhattan hotels. Nonetheless, there are hotels and other Uh, hospitality industry and service industry jobs that pay decently well. And some may be hesitant at first. And given, again, you know, the way things work, they might not be paying that much initially. But the fact is, because of, again, these economic phenomena here, because there's such a demand for workers and not as much of a demand for jobs, workers are getting paid pretty well in some instances. So I wouldn't rush to say, oh, they're not good enough. It's not paying high enough. If you're struggling or if you're, you're looking for work, hey, it's not going to hurt to go get one of these jobs, at least see what's on the table, at least negotiate a little bit. You have a good negotiating power right now. You're in a good position right now to go and try to negotiate a decent position. And, and if you need to work a little bit and diminish your unemployment wages to some extent or get yourself in a position to start building once you come off unemployment, etc., now's the time to do it. It's, it's an interesting time. So I understand employers are struggling, employees, you know, the unemployed are annoyed that the, the type of jobs they want aren't quite there yet. And But it's just an interesting, interesting time, and there's a lot going on, and as usual, it's very complex, and we should embrace the opportunity of coming out of the pandemic and find a way to make it work for us and also not get bogged down in nonsensical notions of whose fault it is or yada, 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 because it's going to get you nowhere, and it's also inaccurate. But as we continue to open up, As we continue to open up and as we speak about kind of disconnects and theories that may or may not be really true, we talk about New York City. And in New York City, as New York City's opening up, there's another phenomenon happening. Partially due to economic problems and because of the pandemic, partially due just because there's a a new influx of people who haven't been there for a long time and it's creating some sociological issues. But in New York City, in the last week or so, we have had a huge, you know, spurt of subway attacks, violent subway attacks. 
We had a stabbing. Somebody got stabbed in the shoulder. We had a woman get hit in the face with a skateboard. We had a two-year-old girl get struck in the face by a bag. We've had just an, an increase in subway violence, and we've had an increase in violence in New York in general. There's been a 17% increase in the murder rate in New York City. The past year, there's been an 83% increase in shootings in New York City. And again, as we grapple with many things that have occurred over the last year, it wasn't just the pandemic, right? There were other issues. There was the defund the police movement. There were law enforcement issues. There were other things, social unrest. A lot of things happened partially as a derivative of the pandemic. I mean, would, I've, when you read history, you realize that a lot of transitionary periods in societies, good or bad, are in conjunction with each other. Again, as I said before, with reference to economic issues, it's a confluence of things. It's generally a confluence of issues that occur. And in this case, you know, everything affects each other. Every situation and issue interacts with one another to create a confluence that, you know, causes drastic change sometimes, abrupt change, sometimes radical change. And in the past year, we not only had the pandemic to grapple with, we not only had the pandemic causing economic issues and transitions and, and, and we restructurings, we not only had that, we had this, it also causing economic hardship, panic, which caused issues with policing and crime. Then we had the George Floyd situation and the Chauvin verdict and all of these things, which framed the conversation on race, framed the conversation on policing, which we've spent a lot of time discussing on this show. But in New York, we've seen an increase in crime, and we've seen an increase in crime in many American cities. And some of this is, of course, attributable to economic problems, but other people would say it's also attributable to changes in police funding, changes in officers and, and what they're encouraged to do and not do, changes in general, all right? In general, not just one or the other, not just one or the other, and and I will say as an aside, when I talk about this positive-negative media thing, I posted uh, two recent things on social media regarding personal experiences of mine uh, within the realm of uh, the criminal justice system, and the better heartwarming story got way more love than the little more harsh, more depressing story, although both got recognition, as I think is important because there's many facets to the criminal justice system and to public safety. But it kind of goes against the notion that you always need to be negative to generate uh, clicks and generate engagement. But anyway, New York City is seeing a, a rise in crime, and especially alarming this week was the subway attacks. There was also a shooting in Times Square. Now, I believe from what I read that this was a targeted shooting where an individual who has now been apprehended, he was apprehended in Florida. He was shooting at somebody in Times Square. I believe he was shooting at somebody he intended to hit. I think it might have been somebody related to him. Perhaps his own brother is what I read, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. But in the process, uh, a young child was struck and injured. Two women were struck and injured. Because Times Square is obviously one of the busiest areas of New York City. 
and it's one of the biggest tourist hotspots, and it's closed to vehicular traffic now and everything else. It's this corporate, dare I say, dystopia at this juncture. Um, but it's a busy, busy, busy area, and there was a shooting there, and people were struck, and people are alarmed. That goes along with all of these subway incidents, slashing, stabbings, and as usual, transit workers, and as usual, those out there who have been at risk and lost their lives at incredible high rates from the pandemic, who kept working while many other people were staying home, who continue to work so that the society can function and we can get around, transit workers as usual, are some of the biggest victims of this violence. And it's alarming. It's alarming. And an interesting thing came out of that. And again, this kind of ties in with just reopening and just these notions. And do we have to pick a political side or can we use common sense? Can we use normal common sense to discuss issues and get to the bottom of things? Well, the MTA did a customer survey recently of its passengers. And the MTA found some interesting things. First off, 70% of riders of the MTA identified crime and safety as a prevailingly high issue as opposed to cleanliness issues or social distancing or pandemic-related issues and other you know, more menial issues like timing. 70% identified crime and safety as a high, high priority and consideration for them riding mass transit. Secondly, secondly, 70%, 70% of MTA riders said that they felt safer. 70% of MTA riders said they felt safer when there were uniformed police officers in and around platforms and trains. 70% felt more safe around uniformed police officers. Now that would be this 70% that feels safer with more police, that is calling for more police. And the MTA workers have been calling for more police presence. They, De Blasio says there have been plenty of police there. They redeployed more police resources to mass transit. But the transit workers are saying it's not enough. A lot of the passengers are saying it's not enough. And interestingly, in this time of defund the police, and I understand, I understand the mischaracterization of the slogan. The slogan, I understand, means reallocate certain funds from policing and reallocate them into crime prevention uh, investments in neighborhoods that need it. I understand the complexity, guys. You know I do. But the slogan's always been a bad slogan. It's always been a bad slogan because slogans got to sell well, slogans got to resonate, and this one doesn't, okay? It's the wrong connotation. And don't mistake it for the fact that just because it's a complex issue that there aren't people on both sides of that, right? Some want to, in a strategic and, and careful way, reallocate certain resources where they're proven to help reduce crime and to help things and where policing is ineffective. But make no mistake, there are other hardliners. There are other hardliners that want to defund it much, much more and truly don't think police are a deterrent or that policing is effective at all. There are people in this country who don't even believe in incarceration at all, but that's another story. Okay, But make no mistake, there's hardliners too. It's not all just this nuanced complexity. Anyway... 
It's interesting because as we come out of the pandemic, you know, it's wide ranging. It's not just economics, but it's also this issue of crime. And it's not just coming out of the pandemic, but it's coming out of this tumult that we were in over the last year that also involved policing, public safety, protests, things of that nature, right? I mean, remember the pandemic? You can't dine out, but you can attend a mass protest. If you attend a Trump rally, it's a super spreader event. But if you attend a different type of rally that's more leftist oriented, there's no evidence that it spreads, right? And now part of that's true, right? Part of that's valid. Because at Trump rallies, they advocate not wearing masks. They don't wear masks. They don't believe in COVID. They're very irresponsible. And at the other rallies, they're wearing masks. They're more conscientious. They believe in the pandemic for the most part. So it does make some sense that certain rallies spread more than others, but it was still politicized, okay? It was still politicized to an extent that it was probably a lot of fallacies going on, to be honest with you, just to suit somebody's agenda. But anyway, as we emerge, there's this other situation going on, which is the New York City mayor's race. And one of the things I'm constantly discussing is I don't necessarily think that the current far-left ideology on criminal justice is entirely accurate or entirely the way to go. And in the mayor race, now you're starting to see, because of this recent spate of violence, you're starting to see a lot of press coverage on criminal justice issues and public safety issues in New York, right? You're starting to see where these further left candidates in the Democratic primary were always at one point deemed to have the leg up. Where now, all of a sudden, they might be in a weakened position. And some of the more to-the-center candidates who are a little tougher on crime are starting to get a little, see an opening. And outlets are starting to report on this. And I found it interesting as we discuss these narratives that people are intent on pursuing. And I'm going to get to another one in the final kind of segment of the show. But I already addressed the narrative regarding the economy and how so many people on the right or Trump people are trying to put it all on Biden. Well, the fact is that on the left, okay, they suffer from similar things. There's a crime increase in New York. Plain and simple. People on MTA overwhelmingly want to see more police officers. People on MTA overwhelmingly think crime is a big concern, and people overwhelmingly want to see more police. They think that's the answer to the problem. Whether it is or not, that's what's going on on the ground. But in the mayor's race, some of the further left people are refusing to acknowledge that reality, and they continue to spin deeper and deeper into their own ideology and their own side, and they refuse to kind of expand. Now, the most liberal person in that race is Morales, and Morales uh, basically basically insinuated, and this was, I think, in a, I forget which periodic, I think the New York Times did an article on this, and, and, and he still disagrees with the false equivalency, false equivalency between police and public safety. There is a false equivalency. I'm not buying that police have anything to do with public safety. Well, that's one of those things that just don't make sense. Just not common sense. And, and guess what, Morales? The public doesn't agree with you. Survey says, survey says, 70% disagree. You can keep spinning that all you want. Now look, 
is there a way to have preemptive funding going to other entities that are better equipped to deter crime before it even happens? Yes. And you're damn right. And I'm one of the people that advocates for that a lot. Community programs dealing with the root of problems before they become the leaves that the police have to deal with. I'm always advocating for that. Newark has a program where people are out on the street in some of the most problematic areas and they have reduced violence. And it's documented and statistically proven that they've reduced violence. And Governor Murphy and the mayor have increased funding to those groups because those groups are making an impact. And there's no reason why in New York City they can't do the same. It really doesn't have to be a zero-sum game either, to be honest with you. They don't have to necessarily take all the money that they invest into those community programs away from the police. They could find it elsewhere. They could generate new streams of revenue. They can raise money through public-private partnerships. They can do a lot of things to get funding to those groups without taking away from the police. But see, that's not the buzzword. That's not the buzzword that was going on the last couple months, the last year. The buzzword was defund the police. So they got to kind of stick with that. So he wants to cut $3 billion. But he's not looking like he's in a great position now because the public seems to disagree with him. And the fact is, whether people want to accept the harsh reality or not, no matter how hard you work, and you need to, and everybody should be working hard, To do things to uplift everybody and to improve things and to deter crime before it starts. Everybody should be striving to do that. But the fact is that even when you do that, there's going to be crime problems. There's going to be certain people that just don't want to stop committing crimes, that just don't want to be nonviolent. And those people have to be prosecuted. They have to be detained. And the fact is $3 billion from the police and corrections budget at a time when crime is spiking, doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. It seems to fit the narrative, the immovable narrative that he wants to stick to, but it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. You got Wiley, Ms. Wiley, who is another candidate. She's for a citizen review board. She's for a civilian police commissioner. Those things all make sense. Those things are probably a step toward increasing... Um, the cooperation between police and the community, increasing trust. Um, and it's an interesting position. But again, when the it's interesting how quickly narratives change and how quickly concerns change, right? First, employers were getting shut down and they had to lay off workers. Now they can barely hire their workers back. First, we were trying to get rid of more police and, and, and reallocate funds. And now we're worried about a crime increase. And people and the public's concerns change so quickly based on what's happening. And the government's job is to address concerns to keep the thing going, not just to constantly cater to their pet ideas. And that's one thing I'm constantly preaching. So now an individual who's emerging from that New York City mail race is Eric Adams. And Eric Adams is a former New York City police officer He's the Brooklyn commissioner at this stage of his career. And he is running for mayor. And he appeared at Times Square twice since the shooting. And he has said that they may need to be a little tougher on crime in that regard. And maybe that just categorically saying you're going to defund the police or this categorical you know, approach that says the key to reducing crime is to reduce law enforcement may not be the best thing. He's a bit more hardline on on crime. And we'll see if that translates into actual votes. But the fact is you can't remain 
set in your ways on any one issue. You have to adapt to the reality around you. And not enough politicians or people in power are doing that. And if I encourage you to be free thinking and use your common sense when it comes to economics or other things, it's got to be the same with this issue. The fact is, there's a spike in crime. People want to see more police on the subway. People want the crime to go down. People are getting hurt. People are being victimized. And some of this was mental health issues, too. They're trying to increase outreach to the homeless population, increase outreach to mentally ill people who are emotionally disturbed. People have perpetrated a number of these crimes. And you're also seeing an increase in, in Asian victims of violence. And some say this is because there's an increase in Asian hate or hate crimes. And some are hate crimes. But many are simply people in the street committing run-of-the-mill crimes and happening to target Asian Americans, in a lot of cases, elderly Asian Americans. And it's a narrative when you want to make it one about race, but when it's just crime in general being a problem and that counteracts the narrative about defunding the police, then all of a sudden it's not the same issue. But it is the same issue. They'll try to frame it any way they can, just like people try to frame the economy against Biden. People will try to frame the issue as two separate ones. This is hate. But no, 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 it has nothing to do with policing or crime because crime's not a problem. Policing's the problem. They, you know, they can't have their cake and eat it too, though. And you can't let them as a thinking person. Fact is, crime's going up. We need to do something about it. Now, Eric Adams has an interesting position. And then McGuire, who's a former Wall Street executive... He, he said maybe we need to take another look at the bail laws. Look, people shouldn't be getting locked up indefinitely for petty crimes. And part of the reason the bail law was enacted was to stop that. And in New Jersey, it's been pretty successful, pretty successful in general in New Jersey. But he says, look, we just need to look at it. If people are getting on the street, on the street, on the street over and over again for gun crimes or violent crimes, then we might need to look at that. He didn't say it is the problem which is important, by the way. He's not making a declaratory remark that it is the problem. He's simply saying, perhaps we need to look at that as one aspect. And again, that's what has to happen. I don't know exactly why crime is rising. Okay, now some of the other candidates, like Ms. Wiley said, well, it's not, it's not crime just rising. It's because of the economic hardship of the pandemic. It's because of the economic hardship. Well, that's probably part of it. I guarantee you it's part of it. Economic hardship is definitely playing a part. I don't think it's all of it, though. And her statement's even more questionable when you go back to what we talked about earlier in the show. When you talk about the fact that there's a labor shortage and employers are ev- – I've seen signs everywhere, by the way, everywhere. Hiring, we'll interview on the spot, just signs everywhere with help wanted. Well, there's all these job openings and people are out committing crimes – Well, it's not totally economic hardship. Part of it, for sure. I'd be a fool and a liar to deny that it's part of it. But I'd also be a fool and a liar to say that's all of it. And rather than trying to spin the outside reality, the objective reality, into a political agenda, people should be looking at solutions. So McGuire, to his credit, he's not saying I'm going to pick one or the other. I'm going to look at what the actual problem may be for this very objectively real problem and see the best way to counteract it. And that's an interesting utilitarian approach, and I wonder if he gets traction on it, because he's also been speaking, saying that police needs reform, which it does. That community police relations are an issue, and they need reform, and we need to change the way that we police, and and that's the truth. Everybody knows that. But you can't ignore the very real problem or the collateral damage that occurs. 
when we go through these transitions. And crime is rising. So as we come out of this pandemic, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of posturing, a lot of political posturing, a lot of people that want to stake a claim for their cause or the other. But the fact is, we're going to have to grapple with rapid change and a transitionary period in this country. And we have an opportunity to seize upon it and do so. But what we will what will we do with it? Well, I'll tell you, there's one group of people who don't really care to make any kind of positive change and don't really care to adapt to objective reality whatsoever. And it's not just the liberals in the mayoral New York City race. How about those congressional Republicans? How about the grassroots Republicans across the country? That's a group who doesn't want to embrace reality. Today, Liz Cheney, who was the conference chair of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives, was voted out of her position. Elise Stefanik was, I think, voted in. She was the favorite. She's a Freedom Caucus member. She says she has serious issues with the voting tallies in states that Trump lost. She's one of these. So in other words, she fits the bill better for being an absolutist, refusing to engage with or believe objective reality, and essentially pledging undying allegiance to Donald Trump, who was a failed one-term president, who demonstrated time and time again that he was unworthy of the office, who incited an insurrection on the United States Capitol following the rightful outcome of a free and democratic election. She wasn't loyal enough to him. She dared to be objective. She dared to stand up for what was right, despite the ideology around her, despite the peer pressure around her, despite the sheer delusion around her. She dared to stand up to it, and so she was voted out. That's scary, right? When I talk about adhering to false notions, false narratives, not engaging with objective reality, one of the most dangerous things you could do is be an entire party political party with power and essentially pledge your allegiance not to a nation, not to an institution not to a belief, not to a principle, but to a man, a person that is the most anti-American, anti-democratic thing anybody could do that is the textbook definition of what America is not about <laughs> it's almost like a deity and people have God, Trump God and all this stuff on their cars, it's, it's like a deity, it's like a, a tyrant a monarch and they dare to tread those waters and then they have the audacity and gall to say that they are the freedom-loving Americans and everybody else is un-American. That's how backward these people are. So they had the audacity. They voted her out, not because of any legitimate reason. They didn't have a legitimate complaint. They didn't have a legitimate grievance, a legitimate ethical issue. They simply said she's not allied enough to Trump. That's it. 
So McCarthy, the, the leader, the minority leader, was on board saying they needed a new new leadership direction because weren't loyal enough to Trump. You have people like that little pib squeak down South Carolina. Lindsey Graham saying that the party can't move forward without Trump. Same guy who denounced the nonsense after the insurrection. Now all of a sudden he's back on it. I mean, these people have no shame. Talk about people on the left not standing up to the police narratives or the crime narratives. I mean, that pales in comparison. This makes that look like a minor aggression on logic and not even that. Not an aggression at all. Just a difference of opinion. Because this denial and betrayal of objective reality is far, far more insidious. So they voted her out because she didn't... She dare question their false quasi-religious insanity and dare introduce objective fact and dare uphold the freedom of American institutions in the face of their dogmatic insanity. And for that crime, she was voted out of her leadership position. So this party is, they're they're not hiding it. They're full-blown saying we embrace Trump in any way possible. He is a deity. We embrace falsity. We embrace lies. We embrace anti-freedom. And anti-freedom of speech, we embrace it fully to the point that we kicked out a prominent member of our party for daring to embrace any of those principles. That's where they stand. There's no question about it. And it's terrifying. And in conjunction with another article I posted this week, I believe it was in The Guardian. No, The Guardian was the, the plane issue with the stowaways. It was in Time Magazine, I believe it was, QAnon. How QAnon has infiltrated many local offices. QAnon in and of itself, much like the Tea Party years ago, is now becoming a force on the ground. That's terrifying. These people don't believe in basic reality, and they're going to have positions of power over us. That's insane. It needs to stop. There's QAnners in the government. Taylor Green, whoever the other one is in the Senate. I think the Senate... These people are dangerous and terrifying, and they have left no doubt as to where they stand. No doubt as to where they stand. And it's very, very, very concerning. They seem to just be going further and further and further that direction. All indications are they're not going to cooperate at all on this infrastructure package. They have no desire to to have corporations and, and the wealthy pay their fair share to finance Investments that we need to make, generational investments, they show no willingness to do that. So it looks like they are just going further and further and further and doubling down more and more and more. They refuse, as I said a couple weeks ago, their party is dying and they want to go out like a kamikaze. They want to go out and just take the country down with them. They don't care about reality, truth, justice, anything. They will purge you for not pledging to their religion which is Trumpism. And let's not act like the left doesn't have some issues with that as well, which is why this country in general, I think, and the society in a more abstract sense is in trouble. But I'm not talking about the left right now. That's scary stuff. Scary stuff. Now, going forward with that issue with those people, the Republicans, 
and Trumpism. There's another phenomenon that's going on this week, and it's the final thing I'll really touch on. The other issue going on this week that's prominent in the news is the Israeli-Palestine conflict. And I see, again, a whole lot of people insinuating in various ways, grasping on to this straws for dear life, that, oh, all of a sudden the administration changed, all of a sudden Biden's responsible for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. That's the new thing. In case you haven't realized, in case you, you know, hadn't been alive, in case you were born yesterday, maybe you were born yesterday, I don't know when you were born, maybe you were born yesterday, maybe you, you grow very rapidly and you're listening to the show, I don't know, born yesterday, it's fine. But unless you were born yesterday, I think you know that the Palestine-Israeli conflict's been going on most of your life, if not your whole life, most likely. It's nothing new, didn't just happen, you act like a gas, like, oh my God, the Palestinians and Israelis are fighting? Oh, this Biden, what's the matter with you? Again, you're trying to buy into whatever narrative makes you feel better about yourself. But here's the thing. It's not my retort to Biden being the problem isn't limited to just, oh, they've been fighting forever. No, 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 no. I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to go deeper. You think I just make declaratory statements without anything to back it up? It's not me. It's not my style. Guys, you know that. I've studied this Israeli thing going all the way back to undergrad. Spent the whole semester researching the inception of Israel prior to the state actually being declared, prior to the war, prior to the annexations, okay? Through the Truman administration, his diaries about it, what he was talking about in closed doors, the whole thing, the back and forth between England and us, the Balfour Declaration, all these things, the promises to the King of Jordan. I, I, I know about these things, all right? And I'm going to go recently and tell you why. Not only is it not because Trump's gone that this is happening, but Trump greatly, greatly helped to precipitate the problems we're seeing now. Trump, not that Trump's gone, all of a sudden it's going to hell. No, Trump created this mess to a large extent. Not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the fighting going on right now. Contrary to the BS narratives people are trying to push out there to make themselves feel better, contrary to that, the fact is a big reason why we're in this mess today is because of Trump. And, and it's funny because, again, again, just like I went back with the economic issues to articles in respectable and reputable mediums that – Predate any of the social media buzz about things, I can go all the way back to articles long before this week when they were discussing Trump's failures with Israel and, and what kind of problems it was going to cause. And I was one of the few people who, because it wasn't posh at the time, people weren't talking about it as much. When Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, I decried it. I thought it was a bad idea. Thought it was going to create problems. No one really paid attention, but this is a couple of years ago. I've been consistent on it. And what I feared is coming to fruition. And what other periodicals feared, and I'll tell you when they were written, what magazines they were. But first and foremost, this Abraham, this Abraham Accords, right, that Trump pushes, that everybody hailed as, oh my God, he's doing unprecedented things. He's bringing so much peace to the Middle East. Well, the same people who decried the Iranian missile deal that Obama made because he gave back money to them and he made concessions. 
were hailing the Abraham Accords as some huge accomplishment. But it wasn't a truce between Israel and Palestine. It wasn't some grand truce that was going to be enduring forever that went to the heart of the problem. The truth was with the United Arab Emirates, and Sudan was part of it. And these have governments that are interested in getting gifts from the United States, too. They have interests in benefits that they can get for themselves and increasing their own autonomy, increasing their own power in the region. And they were more than willing to agree to peace with Israel because they weren't the direct people in conflict with them anyway in order to gain benefits for themselves. So the United Arab Emirates, they got F-35 fighters. Trump gave them F-35 fighters for their deal. Sudan? Sudan, Trump took them off the terror list. They were on the list for sponsors of terrorism, probably for good reason. Trump took them, promised to take them off the sponsors of terrorism list if they signed the deal, so he bribed them. He threatened to take away aid. He promised them fighters. He promised them to come off lists. That's how he got on the sign, and then he hailed it as some peacemaking thing. But the fact was, while he was doing that, he was simultaneously further destabilizing the heart of the conflict, which was Palestine and Israel. When he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, and then he withheld aid from Palestine as a punishment for not going along with his ridiculous proposal of a deal that he wanted to make which would have seen Jerusalem become the capital of Israel he created the foundation for the very unrest we're seeing today and this was not that long ago so at the time when he moved now first of all you need to understand this Palestinian people see East Jerusalem as their capital city they want a state all right? They want a state, and they want East Jerusalem to be the capital of that state. Israel sees Jerusalem as an indivisible capital of its state. It's been contested for so long that United States policy has been not to take an official position in recognizing Jerusalem as a whole as the capital of Israel because it would cause problems and it would you know, send the wrong message to the Palestinians and other stakeholders globally. But Trump went right ahead and just moved the damn thing there because he did what Netanyahu wanted him to do. And Netanyahu's another hardliner, another guy who can't win the popular vote of the country, another guy with a lot of problems, another quasi-fascist leader, smarter than Trump, but nonetheless problematic. The guy who came to the United States Capitol and gave a speech in front of Congress without the president's approval, which the president's the head of state in this country. So the Republican Party accepting that, extending that invitation, him accepting it and coming in here was audacious to say the least. And I resented it. And that guy's a problem. But Trump would do anything he wanted. They were buddies. So it was no question Trump was going to move the capital, I mean the embassy to Jerusalem. And then David Friedman, who was the United States ambassador to Israel under Trump, and Greenblatt, who was the special envoy on Israel-Palestine negotiations, they basically, if they were conduits for the administration's official policy in the region, they said a long time ago that Israel could annex the West Bank, essentially, which is deemed by most international powers to be an illegal annexation. It has been the source of most of the conflict. 
Israel, Israeli settlers and settlements protruding deeper and deeper and deeper into territory that the Palestinians would like someday to be the geographic location of their own state. Israel has been pushing forth with settlements that are pushing out Palestinians and the Trump administration, rather than taking a more neutral stance, rather than trying to get the sides of the table and figure out a realistic solution, went full speed ahead on just one side, Israel's side, with Netanyahu. And they expressly said that Israel could continue annexing areas. Now, interestingly, Haaretz magazine, which is an Israeli newspaper, Haaretz newspaper, Israeli, in November of 2020, November 3rd, 2020, long before Biden was in office, published an article highlighting how Trump was going to do the impossible, in the words of that article, do the impossible and leave the Middle East in worse shape than he found it. And they went through a lot of issues, how the peace deals, what they were backed up with, and how he was doing the bidding of Netanyahu, essentially, and essentially foreclosing any chance of progress or peace between Israel and Palestine by pushing forth the agenda in conjunction with Netanyahu that he did. They highlighted that, again, way before it was on your social media radar. Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, November 15th, 2020, published an article regarding the rapid advancement of Israeli settlement in East Jerusalem as Trump was leaving office. They knew that Trump's friendly policy was not going to be there for long. They knew that Trump had paved the way, so he was going to look the other way as they implemented this policy. And they began rapidly evicting Palestinians and settling Israelis in East Jerusalem, which effectively was going to serve to cut off the West Bank from Jerusalem, city center Jerusalem, which was going to cause conflict. Biden comes in office and Netanyahu's still in power, and he, as always, is acting out of pocket and saying, well, you know what? I'm going to do what I want. I don't care if I have the support anyway. Trump said I had the support. The embassies in Jerusalem, I don't care. I'm going to proceed the way I was. I'm feeling emboldened. And if Biden doesn't like it, screw him. I'm going to throw a temper tantrum because I got a new administration, and I'm going to do what I want anyway. And they have proceeded... And this is what's happened in the last couple weeks. You probably don't even know this. They are trying to evict Palestinian families from East Jerusalem. Evict families, Palestinians, kick them out of East Jerusalem and move Israeli settlers in. That's what they're trying to do. And it's causing unrest. Started with protests. Protests got violent. What else is new? This is what happens in human history. There's unrest. Palestinians are feeling more and more like they're back against the wall. Israelis are throwing a temper tantrum more and more because they're not getting the same backup from the United States. They don't care. Why do you think they blew up the Iranian nuclear plant? Why do you think they did that without permission? I read an article a long time ago. These Israelis are very good assassins. They have very good secret ops. 
Sometimes they work in conjunction with the United States. Sometimes they just go their own way. Sometimes the United States knows about it and just doesn't give an official okay, but turns their head the other way because they don't care. They want it to happen. Sometimes they do it without even asking. Why do you think they're doing it? They're doing it because Netanyahu's saying, A, he's in a precarious political position domestically, which you probably don't know about either. He keeps having to reform parliament. Keeps having to reform coalition governments. He's, he can't do it. He's under investigation, or was. So if he attacks and has an outside conflict, that's always been his biggest strength. Just like Trump, blame the outsider, blame somebody else. That's his thing. That's his stick. So he's going to do that, and also because he's going to tell the United States, this is, he's going to posture with Biden, the new administration. I don't care. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. And Trump said I could. And Trump moved the embassy there. So he, moved, he, he gave me inspiration to do this. So now they're evicting Palestinians from East Jerusalem, and the Palestinians are fighting back. And they launch some rockets. They so throw some rocks. Next thing you know, Israel's just on an onslaught. And some international brokers are calling for a ceasefire. And Netanyahu said flat out, I'm not going to ceasefire anything. There's no ceasefire. I'm going to make sure they knock off this or that. And I'm going to keep up with these settlements. And they're going to like it or they're going to shut up. And that's what's going on. But who planted the seed? Who started that problem in East Jerusalem with the settlements? Who started it by moving the embassy, by expressly okaying the annexation, by expressly okaying or tacitly okaying the evictions and the settlements, which the international community by and large disagrees with? Who did that? Who destabilized that? Who created this problem? Who planted that seed? Donald Trump, the Trump administration. So don't sit around and say, oh my God, all of a sudden Trump's gone and this is happening. If you say that, you don't read enough. If you say that, you don't know much about the situation. If you say that, you weren't thinking about it a while ago when the rest of us were. Don't be a Johnny-come-lately and see your social media light up and say, ooh, this is something to talk about because you're not going to look good when you do it because I'm going to tell you what's really going on. My thing is, it's time an administration does what the Obama administration did. It's time they do what Biden... And now, now Biden, he's not absolved from problems here, from controversy. Even if Trump planted those seeds, the fact is Biden's sitting on the sidelines still talking about infrastructure and nothing else while this is raging, and he's not saying anything, not doing anything. Well, that's not good either. Who cares who started it? Biden's got to tell Netanyahu to stand down. Biden's got to make a stand. He's got to take a stand on this issue. So he's not winning any points. He's not doing himself any favors. He's not looking like a great leader by not getting control of the situation. He deserves plenty of blame for what's going on now and him being in the background. He deserves blame for that. It's not all just Trump, Trump, Trump. Biden deserves blame for that. But he didn't create the problem. The problem's not happening because Trump is gone. It's happening a lot because of Trump. But Biden's got to own it and fix it. If he wants to show that he can be a good international leader, and one of his strong points was supposed to be foreign policy and international leadership and defense. You know, it was interesting. They say that Lyndon Johnson's biggest blunder was he was a domestic-oriented president who had an ambitious domestic agenda, which he passed a lot of it, by the way. Medicare, Medicaid, anybody? But he got so muddled down 
in foreign issues, i.e. the Vietnam War, that it destroyed his legacy and presidency. Well, we might say the opposite with Biden. Not that I'm saying he shouldn't be pursuing a, a, an innovative and ambitious domestic agenda, because I think it's necessary, especially the infrastructure aspect of it. And I think he has been somebody who's cared about infrastructure his entire career. But he's supposed to be a foreign policy hawk. He's supposed to be somebody who's really well-versed in that. I hope that he doesn't get so carried away with the domestic stuff and trying to placate the Bernie Sanders faction that he blunders on international issues. I hope he doesn't. But we'll see what he does on Israel. My thing on Israel is, look, Israel has a lot of power and wealth, and they contribute a lot to research and military prowess. They're a collaborator, a close ally. I'm not saying they're not a close ally to the United States. But the fact is, the United States was a primary reason in why they even have it, a state in the first place. The United States backs up everything. And the fact is, Israel's got to stop writing checks that the United States has to cash. Why do you think we got hit on 9-11? Why do you think all this stuff happens? Why do you think we have to deal with Islamic terrorism in the first place? A lot of it's because of our stance with Israel. It doesn't mean we should abandon Israel. But we're the big brother here, okay? We birthed them. We birthed the state of Israel. As the United States. Okay? We need to tell them to sit down, sit at the table, and listen. And if Netanyahu doesn't want to do that, then that's his problem. But where the United States? They need to listen to us a lot more than they do. And it's time that we sit them at the table with the Palestinians and try to hammer something out. And stop letting them do all the talking and being afraid, afraid at every turn to argue with Israel, afraid at every turn to dare get in their way because of support for Israel, etc. Israel's a very important ally. It's an important state to people of the Jewish faith. They deserve support. They deserve protection. They deserve to exist. But they do not get the right to tell the United States and the rest of the world what to do, and they do not get the right to unilaterally act the way they're acting with the Palestinians and just keep doing it without consequence. And until some administration in the United States gets wise to that fact and, and does attempt to tell them to sit down and listen for once, we're not going to get anywhere. I know Obama tried it, but the Republican Party invited Netanyahu to then speak to Congress. Trump placated them to the moon, to borrow from Elon Musk a term, which was absurd, and that caused this problem, in part at least. Now let's see what Biden does. But the fact is, I'm getting tired of this guy Netanyahu acting the way he's acting and doing the things they're doing. And it's got to stop. But the conflict does not fall on the fact that Trump's gone and all of a sudden Biden lost control and all of a sudden it's a brand new conflict. Conflict's been going on a long time and this specific issue has been festering since Trump and probably due to Trump and Netanyahu. Israel needs a change in leadership in my opinion. I hope they elect somebody else soon because this guy is just enough is enough already. Enough is enough with this guy. But that's what I'm going to say this week about these things, guys. And that's really all there is to say about them. You know, we got to stop 
delving into narratives to try to suit our own agenda. The world's complex. There's things going on. When you think something pops up on your news feed, you think something's new, you think it could suit your agenda, research it first. There's a complex nature to it. Chances are it could support your agenda, and that's okay. It could support your agenda. It could support certain tenets of your beliefs. And on the other hand, certain tenets of that belief system may be challenged by the same objective reality. And that's okay. That's how we get to solutions. That's how we synthesize information in our brains to get us to a point where we're finding solutions, where we're being utilitarian, where we're being practical, where we're collaborating, and we're not stuck in our silos. So those are all the things going on this week that I really thought I needed to touch on to kind of get some actual information out there to, as usual, destroy some narratives on both sides of the political spectrum and to just generally share the news and the facts and figures and the origins and complexities of what's going on in the world today. So I greatly appreciate you joining me for another week and another episode of Logic and Larry and the Logic and Larry podcast. I'll remind you, you can download this show on any platform that carries podcasts. That's Stitcher, Apple Music, Amazon Music, Audible, Spotify, anywhere. iHeartRadio, they all carry the Logic and Larry podcast. Share the podcast with your friends and family if you think they'd get something from it. And let them know that any platform that they use, any of their preferred platforms, the show is available there. I greatly, greatly appreciate your listening to me. I greatly appreciate your continued engagement and support of the show. I will be back live very soon. I hope you'll join me and get back to participating in the comments. Those of you that disagree with me on some aspects, and let's face it, some people were not happy with what I said about the New York City mayoral race and the policing. Some people are not happy about what I said with the Trump situation in the Middle East. But the fact is, I got to just be real, and that's why you listen. And I appreciate you for sticking with me, and I appreciate you bringing other people into the fold because we've seen an increase in listenership, we've seen an increase in engagement, and we've now got people coming from Detroit, from as far away as Dubai, who are calling in and weighing in and discussing these issues. And the only way we're going to go forward, and the only way we're going to break down these barriers between us, and the only way we're going to get to a place of more objective reality is by being brutally honest with each other, brutally to the point, brutally to the facts, and then sharing the podcast and spreading the message and the approach far beyond just listening to this smooth podcast with this smooth jazz in the background once a week. I'll see everybody very, very soon. Appreciate you listening and can't wait to be back with you. It's been another episode. This is 33. Logic and Larry podcast. Good night.